porosity, how to get you know, the proper uh, porosity in your soil. And again, it's, we're, we're going back to look at the, um, that model soil that people say you can't get, but you can. It's just a matter of applying the right practices to achieve that. So we're going we're gonna to go through calcium and magnesium and kind of its roles, um, what it looks like when it's deficient, you know, the deficiency symptoms and things like that, some sources. Um, I don't have on here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what it should be, but I don't have where, you know, what its, you know, what its range should be on the slides here. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you what it is. I, it was one of those things I forgot to put on there when I was, when I was doing this. So anyway, let's jump right in here. We're going to jump to calcium. Remember we said that there's cations and anions, the positively charged and negatively charged. Well, calcium is a cation. And you see up here, it's, a, it's got two plus charges on it. Um, and you'll see when we do magnesium, it has two plus charges too. What that tells you is it's got a, it's got a lot more muscle than the next two we're going to look at, which is uh, potassium and, and sodium. And so if there's co competition for the exchange sites, it's going to matter how much of those materials are there as to who's going to get them. And the, the double plus charges are always going to outmuscle the others to a certain extent. And so um, this is why balance is important. You need to have things in the right quantities, uh, the right percentages really. You get the pounds by the percentages. You want it in the right proportions. Um, and then that works things out so you have the right amounts of, of each of those cations available for the, the crops to grow. Okay, so some of the roles that calcium plays is in cell wall construction, cell division. I'm going to come back to those two in a minute for some, with, with a certain crop. Cell membrane function and material transfer in and out of the cells. I'll come back to that one too. Soil structure, we're going to come back to that one. And it is immobile. In other words, once it is placed in the plant, it does not move anymore. Now, what is that, you know, why is that important? Where you're going to, where you, where you find deficiency symptoms on a plant is going to be determined by whether it's mobile or it's immobile. So if it's immobile, where do you think you would start seeing the first deficiency symptoms on a plant? It would be on the new growth because as it, you know, as you're running short, it's, it's being fixed into the, the older leaves and everything, and so you're going to see your deficiency symptoms on the younger part of the plant. It's going to be up in the growing tip is where you're going to see it. You can also see symptoms in, in the fruit too, um, but that could be calcium, it could be boron, you have to kind of, it could be dry, dryness, there's not enough moisture, so calcium has become immobile. Hmm? Yeah. Um, let, let me, and I have to move fast, I apologize. I, I always wind up, you know, there's too much to cover and, and you know, I, I get off on too many things, but uh, cell wall construction and cell division. Remember I talked about blueberries? Um, the size of the blueberry you're going to get is going to be determined by cell division and what I mean by that is when the, when the, when the flower is pollinated, how rapidly it, it multiplies cells is going to determine how big the fruit gets. The potassium is going to fill the fruit out, but calcium is going to determine how many, you know, the size of the embryo, you know, how big it gets before it starts filling out, before it stops division. Um, and in, you know, and this is why you get higher yields when you grow on balanced soil with blueberries, because if you're growing it without the, the calcium available, you get a smaller berry. When I was doing research on this, I, I was trying to find out, well, what kind of yields should I expect on blueberries? Because I love blueberries, and, and I grow blueberries, and I work with a lot of blueberry growers. 
What kind of yields should I get? Well, I kept coming across ranges of anywhere from 5 pounds to 40 pounds per plant. Now, that's a huge, that's a huge range. Well, it comes down to, you know, how big a berry are you going to develop? And how many of those berries are actually going to set? So, do you think that it would be a lot more profitable to have 40 pounds of blueberries off of a plant than five? Um, anyway, just something I wanted to bring up there as far as the cell division goes. But this holds true with, with any fruit. Is, you know, when that embryo is developing, before it stops the development and begins the enlargement, um, it's going to determine the size of your fruit that you're going to get. So you want adequate calcium there to be able to achieve the maximum, you know, size of fruit that you can get. Um, let's see. Cell membrane function, I, I want to, I'm going to skip that part, but uh, material transfer in and out of the cells. There has to be 60% saturation of calcium in the soil solution around the root zone in order for it to have, to maximize the uptake of other nutrients. Calcium facilitates the uptake of all the other nutrients. And there's a lot more to that uh, that we're not going to have time to talk about, but you want 60% saturation of calcium at least in the, in the soil solution, in the root zone, in order to facilitate optimum uptake of other nutrients. Um, we're going to talk about structure in just a minute, so I'll skip that one. And we already did the immobile, that it's actually an immobile um, element. Once it's built into the plant, it's built in. Uh, here are some of the deficiency and excess symptoms. As you can see, if it, if it occurs in the younger part of the plant, so you've got the terminal buds die. In other words, the growing tip of the plant dies because there's not enough calcium to continue to develop the, the new tissue. Um, young leaves can be hooked, and you can get blossom end rot in fruit. Now, that's because there's not enough calcium to properly build the cell walls, but it might not be calcium. It could be a lack of boron, which keeps calcium mobile. Uh, it could be drought in your soil. Their drill is too dry, and so calcium doesn't move very easy in the soil. And so because it has low mobility, if it's too dry, the plant can't get enough calcium, and so there's not enough calcium available. It may, there may be adequate in the soil, but because there's not enough being taken up, um, you can wind up with uh, blossom end rot on your fruit. Excess symptoms. Um, it, calcium can tie up every other nutrient in excess. Um, there's another issue here we're going to have to bypass as well. You can actually be, but I'm going to say in spite of that, if every other nutrient is at adequate levels, you can have much higher calcium levels. And in fact, there's, you know, like calcareous soils like chalk soils or soils that are, you know, you know, the parent material is primarily calcium. Your, your calcium levels, you will never be able to bring them down to the optimum level. But you don't have to worry about that. What you do is you bring everything else up to make sure it's available. You can indulge, the, the way I put it, because each one of these is a character trait, and I'm not, I'm not comfortable enough yet sharing you know, what I think they all are, but I will share on this one that I, I think you can, you can indulge yourself in mercy. And um, as long as everything else is there, if you're if you're if you're overdo that, and the other qualities, the other characteristics are not there, then it becomes a problem. Yeah, something like that. Cheap grace. Um, so, so on this one, you can you you can indulge 
you know, high levels of calcium as long as every other nutrient is brought up to the levels that it needs to be at. So, and like I said, there are some soils you'll never bring it down anyway. So you're going to be up, you know, like there's chalk soils in England and, you know, you'd be lucky to bring it down to 80% saturation. There's, you're not going to, uh, you'd be spending a lot of money and just never get anywhere because there's so much natural material there. Just keep breaking, you know, releasing and um, adding to it. Okay, these are some of the sources, and I don't know if these are all sources that you have available to you here or not. These are the common sources and the, the preferred sources. There are other sources. I could, you know, list a couple like calcium nitrate. Um, is it actually a good source for calcium and nitrate if it fits into the, the need, uh, what you're trying to accomplish? I don't have that one on there, but, you know, the most predominant sources are high calcium lime, limestone, which is typically, you know, 30 to 38% calcium with minimal magnesium content. I think it can't have any more than 5% magnesium in it, um, but it's primarily calcium, carbonate. Then there's dolomite lime, which is uh, 20 to 24% calcium and 10 to 12% magnesium. Um, I said earlier that in a lot of growers, they're only adjusting pH. So they just go to the quarry, and whether it's a dolomite quarry or a high calcium quarry, they just take it to adjust the pH. And the guys using the high calcium lime all the time wind up with excessive calcium and deficiencies in magnesium. And the guys that use the dolomite lime all the time wind up with uh, excessive levels of, of magnesium and deficiencies in calcium. Because magnesium affects pH 1.6 times more pound for pound than calcium does. So you can maintain your pH while your calcium is dropping because magnesium affects it more. Potassium actually affects it more than two times as much, almost two and a half times as much. And sodium, it's more than four times the influence on pH. So you could have a great pH. My point is you could have a great pH, but it's because you have sodium. And your soil structure is terrible. Well, we're going to talk about it in you know, just a minute, how these cations, all of these cations affect soil structure. And if you're trying to get that model soil, then you have to pay attention to these. Okay, so gypsum is calcium sulfate. Uh, well, let me just say, on the first two, they'll tend to bring the pH up because they're going to replace acid uh, hydrogen ions in the soil. So I'll bring it up. Gypsum is calcium sulfate. It's about 20 to 24% calcium normally, 15 to 18% sulfur. It can vary somewhat on that. It doesn't change the pH on it, but it supplies calcium and sulfur on that. Marl is a material that we, I don't know if you guys have that here, it's a, it's a marine deposit where they, they, they mine it in a marine deposit and it's basically the same as uh, a limestone, similar to it. It's got a lot more clay impurity in it. It's 30 to 38% calcium. Great source. You can usually get it fairly inexpensively. Uh, usually I talk about, well yeah, I'll take it back down here. Oyster shell lime is a, a you know, byproduct from oyster, oyster harvesting. Um, they use that a lot, people who raise chickens. If they're, they're, they're raising chickens for layer, laying for eggs, then they'll supplement the oyster shell to help increase the calcium levels. By the way, you don't have to do that if you've got adequate calcium in the soil that the, that the chickens are feeding off. Though. They'll get plenty of calcium because uh, <clears throat> you'll see when we go and we look at compost that if, if you get compost from a, a laying operation, as opposed to a meat bird operation, the calcium levels are really high because all that oyster shell they're putting in, the, the birds are just excreting it. They're just pooping it out. And 
the majority of it. And then when you put that on, if you didn't know that, then you put on way, you know, a lot of calcium. If you're already you know, high in calcium, then you would be making a mistake. Whereas if it was, if it was a meat bird, a broiler, then uh, it wouldn't have those because they're not supplementing oyster shell to strengthen the eggs. Um, rock phosphates, appetite rock, um, there's, uh, colloidal phosphate is another term. There's reactive phosphate. We have both in the U.S. Um, it's calcium phosphate. And uh, more or less 20% calcium, 20%. Uh, it's actually, tw I have tw P there is elemental, but it's actually 20% phosphate. That's a mistake that I put there. So you'd have to take uh, basically just 44% of that. So it would be around 8% actual phosphorus there. This is a problem for organic growers. Because if you're short phosphate or phosphorus and you need you have your excessive calcium, you have no way to supply the phosphorus that's certifiable. There's no way. Calcium and phosphorus always come together. I should say phosphorus always comes with calcium. It can come with other things, but it always comes with calcium. Um, and so you have a dilemma there, and I have growers right now that are in that dilemma. And what we do is we make sure everything else is good, and we go ahead and use a, a rock phosphate source, a colloidal phosphate or reactive phosphate source, make sure our sulfur levels are high enough, which we'll get to, because that'll help leach out if there's excess. Um, but we go ahead and do that because that's the only choice they have, as, as opposed to going to a commercial source um, of phosphate, which I don't, I don't use triple superphosphate. Uh, the reason I don't use it, and I don't have it on here, oh, well, this is for calcium anyway. When we get the phosphorus, I don't think I, I, I don't even have it on there. Um, it's reacted into a highly soluble form, but it, it, the pH has dropped to three on that. And as soon as that material hits the soil, well, it's going to try to stabilize it back to a stable pH. And so all the reaction they did with the sulfuric acid and the phosphoric acid and everything to get the highly soluble phosphor, phosphate, nature's just going to reverse it all. It's going to turn it back to raw phosphate on that. So, um, and, and I say that because I use the materials that are stable and that benefit the soil. And I, it's not with me. It's not a priority of whether it's natural or it's man-made. It's a matter of whether it's good chemistry. Because there's some natural materials that don't have good chemistry. Um, in fact, I'll talk about it when we get the phosphate, the phosphorus, on there. So layer manure I have down there which is variable, it depends on how much they're supplementing the oyster shell in there, it can, be, it can be variable in it. And then there's industrial byproducts, and I don't know what all the ones, you like in kiln dust for making cement, it's really high in calcium. Um, there's other contaminants in it, so you know, sometimes people don't prefer that source. I just put it there because it's an available source. Sugar beets, do you guys grow sugar beets here for, for sugar production? You don't do a whole lot, okay. They actually, in, in the sugar beet industry, when they're, when they're Filtering the juices from the sugar beet, they filter it through uh, calcium carbonate, high, finely ground calcium carbonate limestone, and uh, then they just get rid of it. And so you can most of the time get it for free. And it's a great source if you're close to a place that has it because it's, you can get it for free. Sometimes they'll even haul it for you to where, where you need it on it. Like I said, there, there may be other exotic sources I just, I just didn't list them because these are pre the predominantly the ones that people would, would have access to. If a grower comes to me and says, hey, I got this stuff, you know, can I use it? Well, then I look at it. There are, there are some other sources that are potentially usable. Most of the, most of the time, other industrial byproducts, even the kiln dust, 
Um, you usually wind up with some other heavy metals or something in it you really don't want. So, <clears throat> Okay, so we're going to move to magnesium. We're just looking at the nutritive roles of, of these elements right now. We're going to look at the structural role here in just a minute. Um, okay, the roles of magnesium, and this is not all the roles, by the way. I'm just trying to give you some highlights of them. If I put everything down there, we'd spend the whole hour just on each one of them trying to go through them all. Um, it's part of the chlorophyll molecule, actively involved in photosynthesis. It aids in phosphate metabolism, uh, activates several enzyme systems. It's uh, part of uh, developing proper soil structure, and it is mobile. So where do you think you would see the symptoms of deficiency first of magnesium? in the older leaves because the plant's going to pull it from the older leaves and move it up the plant into new tissue. So your, your deficiency symptoms you would, tip, you would see in the older leaves showing up with the, a mottling yellowing of those leaves. Um, I think I have that on here. We'll get to the soil structure in here in just a minute. Deficiency symptoms are yellowing and uh, mottling of older leaves because it is mobile, and excesses, it can be similar to deficiency symptoms. Why is that? Why would you think that it would be similar? Excess uh, magnesium. There's one interesting thing about magnesium, and sometimes I share some of that stuff I think I'm not going to do at this time because of the time constraints. If there's too little magnesium, you don't get enough. If there's too much magnesium, you don't get enough. There's a very narrow range, that 10 to 20% range I pointed out earlier. If you stray out of that range very far, then you're going to, on the upper end, you have too much, then you're going to start struggling to get enough magnesium. Uh, it has to do with what magnesium, how magnesium reacts structurally in the soil. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. Is why it becomes harder and harder for the plants to get it when you have more and more of it. There's, you know, if you look at nutrition, there's a big push for people to take more magnesium because it's showing symptoms that people are deficient in magnesium. But the problem is they have too much magnesium. But they're flipping, they're flipping the, the priority to say you need twice as much magnesium as you need calcium. Well, it should be at least the other way around. But there's a misunderstanding about how the dynamics of how magnesium you know, behaves, chemically speaking. And so you're winding up with too much magnesium in your system. It's just not functional. You can't access it. And it winds up um, causing a lot of problems as a result of that. Uh, I didn't mention it. I usually try to on all these nutritional elements too. Calcium, by the way, you know, the big thing is calcium supplementation. Everybody's deficient in calcium. You know, the truth is that it's not calcium by and large. Now, it can be if you're, if you're consuming a lot of a dairy product that has, you know, high protein in it. It, it takes a lot of that calcium to neutralize that acid. And so you don't, you know, in the dairy industry, they really push milk as a, a great source of calcium. But the truth is that it's not a very good source of calcium at all because um, it's required to neutralize all the acidity of all that protein you're getting in the milk. It wasn't designed to develop people. It was designed to develop cows. And uh, so it's a, it's a problem. What's actually missing is sometimes it's, it's other... It's balanced, but uh, a lot of times it's silicon that's missing from the diet. And, and people's diets in the past, we used to eat a whole lot more. We'd eat the potato skins. We'd eat the hull, the rice hulls. We'd eat a lot of the things that had the, the silicon in it. Uh, there's actually major deficiencies in silicon now, by the way. Uh, and we, we'll get to that a little bit later. But um, it's because the biology is being wiped out in the soil. And so while silicon is one of the most... Uh, prolific 
elements on the planet, it's not available because it's not being made available because the biology is being, you know, decimated from all the chemicals and everything that's being utilized. Okay, sources for magnesium, the dolomite lime, of course, again. Um, let me just mention here, I didn't mention on the other one, like dolomite lime. A lot of people say that you shouldn't use dolomite lime because it's not effective or it's poisoning and all kinds of stuff like that. It's because they don't understand the calcium-magnesium dynamic we're going to get into in just a minute. But the other thing they don't understand is that when you apply dolomite lime, the, 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 the magnesium component of it, uh, now there is an exception in New Zealand, they found a, a, uh, some dolomite lime that it releases at the beginning at the same time, but normally it doesn't start releasing for, uh, you know, until a third of the calcium is released out of that lime. And so it usually, in a typical one, if it's got 60% through 100 mesh screen, that fineness of grind, which is just the pores, you know, how much surface area there is, um, it'll take a year before it'll start breaking down. And so a lot of people don't understand that. And they put it on and they don't show, they don't, they don't see the magnesium show up and then they have a problem with the crop and they say, well, well dolomite lime doesn't work right. It's because they don't understand the chemodynamics again of the material that it takes. It takes about a third of the time to go by and that much calcium to, to release out before the dolomite will start, or the, the magnesium will start releasing out of the dolomite lime. Um, I, you know, there is a school of thought that, um, that if you supply some other things, magnesium just magnes you don't need to put magnesium on because it just magically shows up. Um, I haven't seen that to be the case, and the, the dynamics involved with that is a little bit too out there for me. Uh, I prefer to put it there if it's needed uh, by appropriate sources. Okay, I don't know if it's called different things here, but sulfomag or K-mag, K-mag is kind of a brand name. Sulfomag is just short for it actually, they, they did it that way because it reads easier, but it's potassium, magnesium, or, or sulfate of potassium, magnesia is the term, but it's sulfur, potassium, and magnesium. So it's about 22% K2O, which is uh, potash. The, the reason I represent it that way, because if you're looking at fertilizer bags, the two things, everything's in elemental form except two things, potassium and phosphorus. They're in compounds, they're listed in compound form and their percentage is based on the weight of the compound. It's K2O is potash. If you actually wanted um, just elemental K, you would have to multiply that by 0.83%. So to, to get what the actual elemental content of potassium is. Um, but I list it that way because when people are reading fertilizer bags, nobody knows why anybody did that. Some people speculate, well, it, meant, it made it look like you were getting more for what you were buying than you really were. And nobody really knows. It's just a convention that's been continued. When I do my, my recommendations and everything, I put everything in elemental form. So it's all apples to apples, and so you can understand it that way. And then the recommendations are based, I understand this when I'm recommending materials, and so, um, but it's based on you know, what, because you're trying to understand what, how much of that element you're actually applying. So it's 22% K2O, 11% magnesium, so you get about 11% magnesium out of it, 20 to 22% um, sulfur. Um, Magnesium sulfate, which is 9 to 11% magnesium and 11 to 14% sulfur, you might have that, you might not. You might have keyserite here, I don't know. It's another uh, magnesium sulfate material that's about 15 to 16% magnesium, 20 to 22% sulfur. Um, and then magnesium oxide, which is usually 33 to 36%, something like that, of elemental magnesium. Uh, in the oxide form, 
unless it's finely ground, really finely ground, it's not easily available. But if it's finely ground, so there's a lot of surface area, then it can become readily available. And it's an inex relatively inexpensive source, but it has to be finely ground. If it's if it's a coarse material, it doesn't it doesn't release readily. And if the goal here is to get changes to occur in a relatively short time frame. Um, you can put coarse materials on and wait for the next 20 years to get, to get the benefit of it. But we're trying to, the goal here is to get, get the response uh, as quickly as possible, to get things restored to balance as quickly as possible on that. Again, there may be other sources besides that. Well, there's, like, there's magnesium nitrate you can get. It's used in the, the hydroponic uh, growing industry. Um, but it's a more expensive source, a more exotic source, and typically not used. If, uh, uh, these other materials are typically more used than that. Okay, so let's look at soil structure, because remember, we were looking at that ideal soil, and I'm not a very good artist, by the way. I drew them, so it's, <coughs> it's not my, my strong points. But <coughs> um, when you're looking at that ideal soil, the biggest thing, I mean, you need to have chemical balance in there, but you also need to have proper porosity. And when I mean proper porosity, those, air, those pore spaces, there needs to be enough of them. And you'll see when we get to the water part of it, but those pore spaces need to be a certain size. Because if they're a certain size, then that allows the movement of water. That move, allows capillarity through the, the soil. So moderate water can move up in the soil, it can move down in the soil, it can move sideways in the soil. So you're wanting an optimum uh, porosity in that soil, which is not only how much volume it is, but the size of those pores in the soil that hold the air and water. Um, so how, calcium and magnesium are how you achieve that structuring, primarily. Um, beyond, you know, you can use organic materials, and we're going to talk about that. That can help with structuring as well. Um, but chemi chemically speaking, this is how you get soil structure, that, you know, the, the optimum pore structure and everything in the soil. And they do it in two different ways. If you want the soil to open up, if you need bigger, more pore space in that soil, you need to open it up, then calcium will do what's called flocculating of those colloids, it's the, the charged particles in the soil, the clay and the humus colloids will flocculate them. And what that is, and it increases pore space, because what happens is the, the, uh, the calcium ions will attach these clay plates, clay more in a plate form, just think of a flat sheet of paper or something. Um, it will attach them edge to edge or face to edge. So in other words, face to edge is like this or edge to edge is like this. And the dynamic of that bond, uh, you can see, if you look at that, well, we'll look at it after we do the other one. And the interesting thing that happens, is, remember I said that when the farmer said that the field walked easy? What happens is because of that type of bonding, you can get bending. You can get flexing of those bonds, and they'll tend to turn back. The, chemi the, the electrochemical um, behavior will tend to pull them back into those those face edge to edge or face to edge formations. Um, so if you want to open the soil up, calcium can open the soil up and flocculate it. Magnesium aggregates the soil colloids, and you can see by the the diagram here what it does is it takes like if you took two pieces of paper and put them you know flat face-to-face -to, -face to each other. It pulls it together that way and it aggregates it, pulls it down. Um, can you see how that would tighten the soil up, make less pore space in the soil, and this would make more pore space in the soil? Now, there's this going on and this going on at the same time, and again, that's why you want to come back to balance. You need to know what that 
proportion of each of those needs to be to get the optimum por porosity in that, in that soil, okay? So that you get the proper flocculation and the proper aggregation uh, of those materials in the soil. And that's how you get the pore space that you need, the air dynamics in the soil is through calcium and magnesium in the soil. One other thing I want to tell you here is that a lot of other people and a lot of labs don't, don't pay attention to when they're doing recommendations is that there's a one-to-one -one relationship between these two. Is this, as calcium goes up, magnesium goes down on a point-for-point -point basis. Generally, you can generally just measure it on a soil test as you, you adjust it. And vice versa, if, if magnesium goes up, calcium goes down. And so, you remember I pointed out on the, 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 the soil recommendation sheet, the Dysinger soil, soil recommendation sheet there, how I had both high calcium lime and dolomite lime recommended? It's because, uh, and I don't have the numbers here, but let's say that you're, you need to go up 10 points on calcium, but you're great with magnesium. You don't need to go anywhere. Well, what's going to happen if I go up 10 points with calcium? Magnesium is going to go down 10, and now you don't have enough. It's still in the soil, but it's no longer actively available in the soil. And so you have to compensate by that, by when you raise that one, you actually have to put material on. And I get more grief from this with, you know, the people that are supposed to know better. You know, out in Colorado, we had high pH soils, 7.2 to 7.4. This is not that super high, but, um, and we were deficient calcium. And the university had a fit when we told them that we were going to apply high calcium, we were going to apply high calcium lime. They said, your pH is going to go up even worse. It's going to get even worse. Well, they didn't understand the dynamic of the fact that magnesium, and magnesium affects pH 1.6 times more than calcium, and potassium, which we had high potassium levels, excessive, affects it two and a half times more. So as the calcium's replaced the magnesium and the potassium, you know what our pH was the next year? It didn't go up, it went down. The next year we were sitting at seven instead of 7.2 to 7.4. And the following year, we went down into the sixes, even though we put an alkaline cation onto that soil. Because, you know, this is why the Albrecht model gets a bad name with a lot of people, because they don't understand, the, they don't understand these aspects of it. And they, they, they make recommendations, they do applications that don't take this into consideration, and things get all out of whack. Um, or they don't do things because they think, you know, we're going to mess up the pH or whatever. They don't understand this dynamic. But this is how you get this, this is how you get the pore space in the soil. Now, like I said, you can utilize um, organic matter. Organic matter can also help structure soil as well. But as far as chemistry goes, this has a lot bigger influence on the soil than organic matter does. And this is how you do it. So what they tell you you can't do, you just have to be, live with what you have. That's not true. This is how you actually do it. Properly applied, you will develop the ideal pore space in that soil. For, for what you need. And not only the ideal pore space, you'll actually produce the ideal pore size so that you get optimum capillarity or water dynamics in that soil. So that you got water movement through the soil. If you start a mine and lime at the same time, it's kind of can Well, if you use high calcium lime and dolomite lime together, they won't, they're going to release. And so it's a matter of when they're going to release and how, you know, the, the dolomite's going to come later. But yeah, they won't counteract each other. When I do a recommendation, I base it on you know what the lab report tells me the conditions are. 
And so then I figure out what combination of two. There's, there's calculations you have to do to figure it out. I figure out how much of each one needs to be applied so that you maintain as you're going up, especially if you're going up with one of them significantly and you're going to be pushed significantly down. Uh, but no, they, they'll affect each other because they're rate breaking down at the same time, but they won't counteract each other, really. It will. The calcium will counteract the magnesium, but that's why you're putting it on in the quantities you are to make sure that you end up where you want to be rather than um, not where you want to be. Um, I'm going to have to switch this out, but while I do that, we need to um, we need to talk about tillage. Remember, I was talking about tillage and how you work. You know, your, one of your primary goals in tillage is to hang on just a second here. Let me find my other one. Oops. Okay. One, you're trying to, with tillage, you're trying to get uh, residues broken down. Um, and the other one is you're trying to get, you're trying to break that soil up and get air into the soil. You can achieve those objectives with good chemistry, both of them. You know, the better the, the the better the calcium-magnesium balance is, um, if you have, it's, uh, and we'll talk about when we get to sulfur, having adequate sulfur levels there will, will break those residues down even if they're sitting on the surface. You know, there's a lot of growers that, that do no-till uh, farming, and the guys that do really well have good, good chemistry in their soil because those residues continue to get broken down. The guys that don't have it, they get waterlogged soils, they get diseases building up because the residues are not breaking down. And so, you know, people that are hardcore, oh, well, everybody ought to no-till because then you're not going to do damage to the soil. Well, there's damage already being done because the chemistry is not right, and you don't have the porosity in that soil. What, why does it matter? Let's just, let's just touch on that here before we do the potassium soil. Why does it matter that the soil be able to breathe? Remember I talked about the, having the right spirit? Um, if there's not enough air exchange in that soil, then conditions go anaerobic. In other words, you start getting reactions that are without oxygen. And, you, and, and so you're really looking at enzyme and hormone systems here functioning. The enzyme systems are, are driven by the chemistry, the, the minerals, and then the hormone systems are driven by the porosity or the air exchangeability of that soil. will determine what kind of hormonal influences are, are driving the, the chemistry and the, the, the growth in, in that soil and then in the plant. Um, if you have anaerobic conditions, you produce things like uh, alcohol, formaldehyde, so you can go and you, you can dig up residues from a year or two before if you've got really bad structuring. And it looks like you just, you just dug them in. They're still green and, and everything because they're being preserved by the formaldehyde that's being produced from the anaerobic conditions. Um, it'll produce methane, ethane, butane, um, these, other, these other compounds from anaerobic breakdown. And those, it, it, remember I said it's the kind of spirit you have, that, that understanding or that feeling of the whole process influences what gets made. And so the plant gets made wrong. And the fruit that's produced from it is, is not really what it should be. Um, whereas if you have an anaerobic condition and it's, it's oxygenated, it's breathing, then the, the metabolism that goes on in that environment is completely different than, than what goes on in an anaerobic condition. So that's why you need to, 
You need to have the right spirit in that soil in order that the chemistry is properly expressed in, in the life. Okay, let's look at the other two major cations, potassium and sodium. Some people think that sodium is unimportant. Uh, when we get to it, you'll see that it's not unimportant. And that's why they don't measure it on, some of the labs don't bother to measure it. But it is important. It is an essential element. But let's do potassium first. Um, potassium, like I said, is a single plus charge, so it doesn't have the muscle that calcium and magnesium do. And it doesn't have the muscle, uh, none of these have the muscle that aluminum has. Aluminum is an acid forming cation with a triple plus charge, a triple charge. And if you start running low on the calcium and the magnesium and the potassium and it gets too low, that aluminum starts taking the place on the exchange sites. And aluminum is not a nutritive element. And people wonder, what in the world would you use aluminum for in, in a living system? Well, God made a, a, an inter, interdependent dynamic system in which everything has its role and its place. Aluminum is a structural component to facilitate the availability of nutritive elements. And, but when it's not in its place, when it becomes soluble like that and, and begins substituting, taking the place of the, of the alkaline cations, then it becomes toxic and it becomes a problem because it doesn't belong inside of you as a nutritive element. It's, it's a structural element and it should stay as a structural element. It's actually part of the silico aluminate crystalline structure of the, the those clay colloids. And um, that's a whole eight hour class on its, its own, but you know, that's where uh, it becomes a problem. You can look. Oh, sorry, go Yeah. It's 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 more than likely. It's it's directly connected. Yeah. yeah. She was asking, is that you know Alzheimer's the aluminum that's, that's contributing to Alzheimer's and everything? It has it's more to do with the soil condition than anything. Yeah. I mean, some of the some of the chemicals that are being used in food production also have aluminum in it, so they're contributing that that available aluminum to it. But you know, I know I have. We'll go back to blueberries again. I, I had a blueberry grower I did the soil work for because he almost got thrown in jail because his pH was so low that he had toxic manganese and toxic aluminum in the blueberries that people were eating. When the pH gets that low, you, you're making more and more available those, those nutritive and the mangan manganese is a nutritive element, but at that level, it becomes toxic. It's excessive. Like any character trait, you can overdo anything. You can exaggerate it to a point that it's, it's destructive, it's not constructive. Um, and so that's why you need the balance. You need to make sure that you're maintaining that, that, that soil chemistry the way it's supposed to be, because the further away from where it's supposed to be you get, the more disruptive it becomes to life, the more damaging it becomes to life. How hot is it to correct your soil in that way? You just... Uh, I have I have this situation because I have a low CEC, highly weathered soil where I am in Kentucky, and there's a lot of there's a lot of free aluminum in that soil as a result of that. But the first priority is to build all your your nutritive elements to their hot, their optimum levels. But one of the interesting problems we have is that we were having a hard time building phosphate. You know, when you use this type of analytical um, method. It should show up, it was designed to show up in the field. So you should be able to go out and see the next test that should show what you put on. It should correlate pretty close to what, 
you put on. Well, we put five to 600 pounds of phosphate on, which should have been all we needed um, to be at excellent. And we only got a build of 100 pounds. Where did it all go? I put it on. I know I put it on. It's a triple charge, triple negative charge. It doesn't go anywhere once it's in the soil and reacts. Um, well, what was happening is it was reacting with free iron and free aluminum in the soil and neutralizing it, stabilizing it. Well, uh, and Neil Kinsey told me one time, he said sometimes, because I asked him a long time ago about this, and he said sometimes you put things on until the soil is satisfied, you're not going to build availability. So in other words, you have to reconstruct things up to a point of stability, and then you can start building. And we'll, we'll look at that when we look at um, how to, we're going to look at briefly how do you avoid insect and disease, pest pressure. When you get to the point of press down and overflowing, that's when it goes away because you're now producing surpluses um, of all of the things that confer life. And, and uh, we'll look at that when we get to it. But yeah, we, we just started this year, this last year, actually building our levels like they should have. So it's, it's obviously satisfied whatever chemistry requirement it was there, which is likely it's, it's probably you know, neutralizing, it's reacting. Phosphate is, phosphorus is highly reactive. Um, we'll talk about it in a minute where that could be a bad thing. Okay, um, so let's try to get through this. I have five minutes. I want to get through at least the, the potassium and sodium here. Um, the deficiency symptoms on potassium are scorched yellow leaf margins. Did I actually do the rolls? I didn't read the rolls. Let's do them real quick. Uh, processes that produce stalk strength. Potassium is the first key to stalk strength. You know, the things that stand up. Uh, regu it regulates, uh, it's a regulation of leaf transpiration and gas exchange, water use efficiency, um, especially if you guys are living in a drier climate and everything like that, one of the key things you want to have is adequate potassium levels there to get better water use efficiency because it controls the, the, uh, the gas exchange and the transpiration of the leaf. Um, winter hardiness contributes to winter hardiness of plants, and it's mobile. So where are you going to see the deficiency symptoms? In the older, older part of the plant, not the younger part of the plant. Okay, and those deficiency symptoms are scorched yellow leaf margins, you know, along the edges of the leaf. And it's, it's usually on the older leaves. Most commonly it's on the older leaves. Sometimes it'll work its way up the plant, depending on how bad the deficiency is. Um, and excesses or luxury consumption that leads to other cation deficiencies. This happens a lot because of the amount of potassium that's used in commercial fertilizer. Uh, again, this is a whole subject that would take a long time to describe, but the plant itself has a cation exchange capacity. It has a capacity of how much it can take up. And it'll take up, what it takes up will be determined by the balance that's in the soil. And once that capacity is filled, it's filled. And if it's filled with the wrong things, it's filled with the wrong things. Um, but you can get luxury consumption typically leads to deficiencies of potassium or, or I mean, uh, calcium or magnesium or even sodium. All right, sources. We'll go through these really quick. Potassium sulfate uh, is the source that I use probably the most. It's 50 to 52 percent K2O or potash, and 17 to 18 percent sulfur. Um, then the sulpomag and the Kmag again has the 22 percent K2O in it, along with the magnesium and the sulfur. So you determine which material you're going to use depending on what you need. If you need all three of those, then you would use the sulpomag. Um, if you only needed potassium and sulfur, you'd use potassium sulfate. Or you, in some cases, you might need to use both. Um, I've got potassium nitrate down there. It's a, a little more expensive source, that if, but if you need stuff in short order, it's a good source. 
green sand, you, I don't know if you guys have that here. It's a marine deposit that's a slow release source uh, that's about six to nine percent. You probably don't, you may not have that one. Granite dust is four to six percent. Uh, K2O, you can apply that. It's a, it's, a, it's kind of like building reserves though. It's a slow release source. It's not something that's going to give you the immediate responses that you want within a short time frame. Uh, animal manures are, you know, a half to three percent potassium. Uh, kelp or seaweed can be five to sixteen percent K2O. Uh, great source because you get a lot of trace elements with it um, that you can utilize. It's an expensive, it's an expensive material, but if you if you factor in the, the, all the, the advantage of the trace elements and the growth hormones and everything that are beneficial, it's a, it's a good source. Wood ash, somebody was asking about wood ash earlier, is about seven to nine percent potassium. It's highly available potassium though, so you got to be careful how aggressive, how much of that material you're putting on. Be sure you actually really need it, so it has some place to go. Potassium, because it's a single plus charge, can't outcompete calcium and magnesium. And so if you have a pH of 6.5 or higher, in general, you, you cannot build potassium levels with commercial sources. You can with like manures or compost, you can actually build with those because they have a place that they're already captured in. But as far as commercial sources like the potassium sulfate sulpomag, if you put it on, your pH is higher than that. You may get some of it in the growing process, but a lot of it might just get leached out and lost. So it's something to be mindful of because you don't want to spend the money and then just have it washed out by the rain because there wasn't anywhere for it to go. Uh, sodium, its role, it's required for proper growth of barley and crops in the goosefoot family. Beets, spinach, Swiss chard. If you want really good beets or really good Swiss chard in this family, if you need to have you know, the right amount of sodium there. If you don't, they're not going to grow as well. Sometimes people grow them, they just don't seem to grow really well. Well, it could be you just don't have enough sodium in the soil. Sodium can substitute for potassium, though. And so you have to make sure that so potassium is always higher than sodium. If sodium ever gets higher than potassium, then it'll substitute in the plant. And if you get hot, humid weather, it'll cause, it'll cause the, the water to be pulled in and expand and, and burst the cell walls and it dies. And a lot of times people look at it as some kind of disease. It's not a disease. They just blew up the cells with the, with the sodium because it substitutes in the cell wall for potassium because it's higher than the potassium. That's, that's correct in fruit as well? Anywhere there's a substitution, it takes place, yep. Deficiency symptoms, uh, poor growth, and yield of the sodium-requiring crops is the primary deficiency symptom. And the excess is substitution for uh, potassium potentially resulting in tissue rupture and damage, which I pointed out. Um, let me just, uh, let's do the sources and I want to back up and talk about how they affect structure of the soil. Sodium nitrate or Chilean nitrate is a, it's a mined source. Um, it's got 26% sodium in it, so if you don't need sodium, it's not a great source. But if you need sodium, it's a good source for nitrogen and the sodium. Sea minerals, um, which was where they dry ocean water to, to uh, extract the sea minerals from it is a good source of sodium and all the other trace elements that are in the ocean. Um, it's a really good source. And again, kelp has sodium in it. It's variable, uh, like on the, on the sea minerals. But those are good sources of sodium. I use the sea minerals a lot. I don't use sodium nitrate a lot because it's expensive. And the sea minerals, I get a whole lot more with it than the... Um, okay, so... Let's look at, uh, real quick, because I'm probably out of time, potassium 
Well, let's look at sodium first. Sodium actually disperses. Remember I showed how the magnesium brought the plates together like this and the calcium brought them together like this? Well, sodium actually disperses. It actually just knocks them apart. And the result of that is that it plugs your soil up. If you've ever seen high sodium soil, when it's wet, it's soupy, and everything like that, and that all just runs down and plugs up all the pores, everything just gets all plugged up, and then you, have, you, you don't have good drainage, you don't have good porosity in the soil, and then when it dries out, it's hard as a rock on it. So, um, and the potassium, when you're, if you get, it, potassium can actually plug up, it's like putting a plug in a tub or something, it can actually plug up the, the clay and block off the capacity of the soil too. It's not a very good way to describe it, but if I try to describe it technically, we'll get, we'll get bogged down with it. But it can actually plug the soil up. And so you can see why you want the balance here. You want some of the dynamics, you need the nutritive dynamics, you need the structural dynamics, but you want to make sure it's balanced so you can maintain that porosity. This is how you get the porosity in the soil, is with this chemistry, properly applied at the right, in the right proportions. Um, and it's nutritional at the same time. But it, it, it plays two roles there. Do you have a question? Okay. Okay. I need to just. We're going to take a break here real quick, and then we're going to go to the the uh, the anions, the negatively charged ones. Uh, that's the phosphate and the sulfur and the and, uh, phosphorus and the, the sulfur and, and nitrogen. And we're going to look at those, and then we're going to look at trace elements, and hopefully we'll make it through that. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.